Hello, friends and colleagues. This is Jared Siliker in Seattle, and this is Building Better, a podcast that tracks sustainability stories in the built environment. Welcome to episode two, where we'll focus on the Living Building Challenge with Meyer Harrell. Meyer is the Director of Sustainability at Weber Thompson, which is a multidisciplinary design firm covering architecture, landscape, and interiors. I really wanted to talk with Meyer because he is immersed in the Living Building Challenge and is witnessing its evolution firsthand. In addition to Weber Thompson's growing body of Living Building Challenge work, we also touch on the City of Seattle's zoning incentive that is helping to spur more LBC projects. Meyer brings some great thoughts around continuous improvement, both as a designer and from his real estate client's perspective. We also put our policy hats on and bat around ideas for generating even more Living Building Challenge momentum. So with that, please enjoy episode two of Building Better. Hello, Meyer. Welcome to Building Better. Thanks, Jared. Thanks for having me. Meyer is here in Seattle uh, with me, although we are uh, suitably virtually distanced. Meyer uh, is the Director of Sustainability at Weber Thompson. Meyer, what, uh, what's that mean on a, on a daily basis for you? What, what, do you? what do you get to do? Yeah, so um, in my role of, as Director of Sustainability, I'm uh, overseeing our overall sustainability action plan. And so this is something that um, goes back uh, quite a ways at the firm. More recently, um, you know, since the AIA 2030 commitment was launched, we've become a, we were a signatory fairly early on in, uh, I'd say, 2010. And um, so our, our sustainability action plan really uh, comes from that in, in a lot of ways. Um, the, the 2030 commitment that um, you may your listeners may know a bit about, but it uh, might be helpful to just kind of give a quick overview. There's a couple parts to it. One is we're measuring um, project performance in, in the design phase for our entire portfolio, no matter what the, the targets, no matter what the certifications it's going after, no matter what the, the local um, codes require. Um, and so that reporting provides a foundation for a lot of the um, improvement work that we're doing on a case-by-case or project-by-project basis. On top of the AIA 2030 commitment, um, what we're doing internally in what I call the sustainability team is we have our um, sustainability action plan, which includes not only that commitment tracking, um, it includes a better understanding of our office operations. So as a business, um, what is it lo- what is our carbon footprint? You know, everything from, um, our, this, the space use we have in our building to um, commute and work travel to procurement and then um, looking at that as a, as a whole on an annual basis and doing carbon offsets um, and in tree plantings, those sorts of things. Um, and then on top of that, we're, um, as an internal team, we're looking to just always raise the bar of understanding across the firm, providing education, um, some of that generated by us, some of it um, bringing in experts, some of it connecting with other resources like webinars and classes and things like that. Um, At the same time, oftentimes we are, um, in our sustainability group, we are doing independent research projects. Um, So at times um, when it's not directly connected to a project or it's not part of a, a project workflow, 
we will at times study some aspect that we want to just know more about um, ourselves, whether that's more recently something like embodied carbon or um, a couple of years ago, we did a uh, occupant behavior study in an office space, um, our own. So we got to be uh, guinea pigs in our own space to better understand that. So those sorts of things. And sometimes those end up resulting in, um, you know, a, an independently published white paper, that sort of thing. So as director, I'm overseeing all those efforts and trying to see where we can best leverage them into projects and hopefully improve our, our entire portfolio over time. And I should say, and I should say that that the director role is not full time. I'm also um, splitting that time as architectural project manager on primarily commercial office projects as well. For any anybody listening that's not a deep um, architecture nerd, <clears throat> um, things like uh, you know checking checking back on projects for how they're performing um, and tracking uh, you know performance across portfolio, you know, these are relatively new developments for the architecture community. It's stuff that for folks like Meyer now feel like, I think, uh, you know, the, the emphasis and, and very important, but, you know, rewind a few years and not that many firms were, were doing this type of thing. So I think uh, kudos to you and, and others in your, in your role for kind of pushing, pushing it forward. I appreciate that. Yeah. And there, there's, I think, about 600 firms now across the U.S. Um, that are signatories to the commitment and are submitting this data to a central database with AIA every year. Um, and what's great about that is then we can look at reports uh, that aggregate that data, show, without naming too many names, um, how <laughs> how firms are doing on the whole, what are trends that we're noticing based on project type, that sort of thing. So it's really helpful to be able to reflect back, not only how are we doing just within our own firm, but how are we comparing to our peers, what's happening in our region, what's happening with this project type, et cetera. Right. And speaking of project types, um, can you real quick just outline what types of projects Weber Thompson is, is usually involved with? Yeah. Um, so we are probably most well-known. And so we've been around um, 30, two years um, and probably most known for our uh, multifamily work. So mid-rise and high-rise uh, apartment and condominium work. Um, also, okay. we've um, got some great senior living projects. Uh, more recently in the last, I'd say, 10 years, um, more affordable housing projects. Um, and primarily, I should mention, primarily geographically, we're talking about in uh, Puget Sound area, generally urban development. Um, a lot of it is mixed use. Um, and a lot of it is transit oriented. And then um, we've also have some hospitality projects. And more recently, in I'd say the last six years, um, we've really been building up our um, commercial office studio, doing a lot of uh, ground up corn shell speculative office buildings and commercial TIs. Got it. Got it. Great. And then, you know, I think this is a good segue to our, you know, primary focus of talking with Meyer is uh, Weber Thompson has, has really built uh, an impressive uh, and growing body of work around the living building challenge, uh, which is a um, green building standard uh, facilitated by the International uh, Living Future Institute. Did I get all those mm -hmm. yep. names right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and and so you know, 
I wanted to talk to Meyer to really like dig into this idea of um, how living building challenge being a quite aggressive standard, you know, how that can really be advantageous to commercial developers um, and, and growing, growing so in, in Seattle as, as we're seeing um, and, and probably elsewhere. Um, so I don't know, Meyer, do you want to just kick us off with maybe just super quick overview of, of living building challenge and, and, and just kind of how you've uh, generally been building that practice? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll try to do it justice on living building challenge as a whole. <laughs> it's, there's a lot there. Um, no, so, no test after this. Just... Yeah. So um, living building challenge is a um, yeah very forward thinking uh, green building certification that was launched, I believe in 2007 um, and soon was uh, administered under the Cascadia green building council and international living future Institute. Uh, and what makes it unique, there's a few things that make it unique from other certifications like uh, LEED and, um, and and a few others. And for, you know, first and foremost, you don't have the option to take points and credits um, and and get a, a score that gives you a, a certain um, sort of tier of certification. You For the full living building challenge, you have to meet all of the, um, the individual requirements called imperatives. Um, and and what's what's unique about that as well is that a lot of the imperatives um, are not fully achieved until after the building is built. So you're talking about a building that not only has to be designed to be um, very high performing, but it also has to achieve it um, in construction, in completion, in occupancy, and for some period of time afterward. Uh, most notably, in full living building challenge, you have um, now in the current program a net positive energy building. So building that uh, generates more energy than it uses on an annual basis. Um, and there's lots of caveats to that. Um, there, you have a net positive water building. Uh, you have a building that meets the materials pedal, which has a few components to it, but probably most notably is the materials red list. So um, for the most part, you cannot specify and install products in your building that um, have one of the uh, red list ingredients. So I think the um, the primary list is 22 product, uh, 22 ingredient categories. And then I think that ends up um, generating over seven, eight, almost 800 different chemicals that you have to weed out as you're, as you're working through the project. Meyer has them all memorized. I'm yes. All sure, 700 some. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting there, but you know, it's brains only so big. <laughs> Yeah, the the last uh, twenty minutes of this podcast is just going to be listing off chemical names. Yeah, that's right. Um, so um, th that those are just a few highlights. There's other um, pedals and requirements as part of the living building challenge, but I think um, notably for project teams that have gone through it, and there's been a, a number of them in Seattle. Um, it's challenging. It's very difficult. Um, some things like the net positive water, which theoretically you would be. Um, not taking on any municipal water on site and you would not have any water leaving your site um, is currently illegal to do. You'd have to uh, have to you'd have to essentially create your own water utility and then probably also get around some some county and state health code um, issues. So so it, these things are not easy to accomplish, especially in an urban environment. Um, 
and so what's what we've been really excited about is uh, starting in, I believe it's 2009, um, but I might get the date wrong, um, the city of Seattle, um, and this has evolved over some time in partnership with the ILFI, uh, decided um, this is a good thing. We want to do more of this. We want to encourage these types of buildings, these net zero energy, net positive energy, net positive water, healthy material um, and, you know, really focused on human health, environmental health, um, social justice, et cetera. We want these buildings in our city. We want to encourage them. And so they created the living building pilot. Uh, and uh, the pilot's in its fifth version now. There's There's been some, some tweaks along the way. But uh, essentially what it says is if you participate in, um, you, you can choose to participate as a full living building. So all of the pedals um, and all the imperatives. You can also um, do pedal certification, which is a um, it's um, you know three of the seven uh, pedals or categories. Uh, one of them has to be energy, water, or materials. And you, if you also um, meet some of the post occupancy performance requirements for energy and water, um, plus there's a few other footnotes there. But it's essentially um, a, a, a partial living building challenge certification. The city will offer in exchange, um, development incentives, um, primarily through, um, height and area available for development. Um, there's also some, there's also a little bit more leniency when it comes to, um, land use standard, uh, departures in some cases, especially where it supports a higher performance building. Right. And I think this is, this is, I think a neat point to, uh, make kind of historical reference of it feels like this is now, you know, gradually starting to engage the, the, um, development community more so, um, as, as you noted, um, by offering those very real development incentives, zoning incentives, uh, that developers surely desire, um, that, Historically, as we look at Living Building Challenge, a lot of us, especially in the Northwest, look back to the Bullet Center, um, mm-hmm. which was one of the first uh, kind of uh, multi-story, multi-use office um, buildings, you know, commercial buildings that uh, went uh, full living standard um, and has been, you know, a real uh, amazing accomplishment and a, you know, but but also very much a demonstration project. It's a non-bullet foundation as a nonprofit that's very mission aligned. You know, no, um, <clears throat> they were uh, a perfect fit for Living Building Challenge and and did a lot of the early uh, research of testing out the standard and making it a real thing. Um, now, as we try to encourage more um, developments to utilize the standard, it, it feels like, and maybe Meyer, I think, has is starting to see this um, on the ground of engaging these developers in a in a real way to hopefully get us more of these types of buildings. I, th- I think that's right. Um, when I've heard um, numerous people um, from the design team to you know Dennis Hayes with the Bullet Foundation to um, other um, you know staff from ILFI, people talk about the Bullet Center as you know, as the demonstration project, as you describe, but also as um, hopefully the first of many 
the idea being that you can do, um, you know, yeah, you know, demonstration, um, but also um, a proof of concept. You know that um, it's not. Um, I, I guess I should say before the Bullet Center, uh, most of the living building challenge projects were not dense urban projects. You know, they weren't six story mm-hmm. speculative commercial office buildings, mm-hmm. um, and they. And so the the idea of you know doing a living building challenge project, doing a living building in you know a commercial or urban core, the, the, those two ideas didn't really seem to mesh. So the Bullet Center was very important in just being able to, to point to something that says, this is, this is how it's done. This is how you can do a living building in a, an urban environment and in a way that, that looks like, um, a commercial development. So, so yeah, I, I I think that's a really important milestone. Um, the, the problem I think was, or maybe one of the challenges was you know, just the timing, you know, it, the bullet center was wrapping up, um, kind of on the tail end of the great recession. Um, mm-hmm. so, there, so unfortunately, um, just, you know, it, it didn't turn out to be, um, the first of many in that, in that particular cycle anyway. Sure. Um, but, uh, but it also paved the way for this, um, for this, uh, land use ordinance for the living building pilot, which said that because we, because the city wants to encourage more of these building types, um, here's a pathway. And so even if right, every project right. can't do all of, like, like you said, the sweat equity, all of the work that went into figuring out the living building challenge for the bullet center project teams can probably do a good portion of it. Um, even if they can't do net positive water on site, um, you know, net positive energy, especially once in um, I believe it was in 2008 or sorry, 2018, um, the urban offsite exception started to come into play. That started to become within reach for project teams because as long as you maximize your, well, first, as long as you make your building as efficient as possible and as long as you maximize the amount of onsite energy generation, then you can start to look offsite to achieve the net positive energy. That starts to make um, portions of the Living Building Challenge look more achievable on some of these projects. Mm-hmm. Um the materials pedal, while it does take time and energy and real attention to the process, it is um, very achievable for most project types. I, I don't, I don't see any reason why you couldn't go through that process as long as you have a, a dedicated team um, to to just go through the red list vetting to, you know, track your material sourcing to look at your um, carbon footprint of materials, which is something that's been developed even further in more recent versions of the challenge. Um, yep. So, so these things are very achievable. I think um, we just needed to, as a community, we just needed to see some examples of it for, for more of the commercial project types. Yeah. Um, yeah. It seems like this like confluence has finally come to play. You know, as you mentioned, we, we get out of the, the recession um, first uh, we've, we, keep gathering more, more research and experience and, and on the, across the industry, we just have more uptake by manufacturers that are participating in, for instance, ILFI's declare program or other transparency, um, efforts. Um, so, you know, that, that world keeps going. Um, and then 
uh, you know, you, you also mentioned the Seattle's program ha- has gone through multiple iterations. You know, for a few years we were saying, oh gosh, we have this great program, but where are all the projects? Um, and, you know, you, you can't always point to one thing, but I think we've, we've talked in the past about, okay, yep, we, we nudged that incentive up just a little bit more, clarified a few things, worked with the development community to do that, to say, yeah. what's really, what's really going to work for you here so that you'll be inclined to actually do this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, that's the goal. So, you know, I, you know, all those things coming together, um, feels like we're, we're finally getting somewhere. Um, and, and of course you and, and your, and your crew at Weber Thompson have been, you know, in that, um, with a, with a bunch of different projects. Um, so yeah, I don't know any other, any other things to add to that list of how that, uh, you know, arc has gone in terms of these conversations with developers, the, just the challenges and hurdles in, in front of you to both convince teams to go that route and then actually do it. No, I think that's a good, that's a good way to describe it. Yeah. We're kind of in a, in, in a place of good momentum with, with conversations with, um, with our clients. Um, we're, we're kind of at a place now where most, um, not every single project, but many of our projects were starting off in early feasibility and yield study stage, um, asking the question, you know, is this uh, additional area and height uh, valuable on this lot? Uh, does it give a uh, development team a particular advantage? Um, I think that's now, nowadays it seems like that's the name of the game, you know, does the extra height and area, as long as you can, minimize the risk and manage the cost of um, some of these systems we're talking about and some of the soft costs for making sure you're, you're going through the process. Um, does that make um, more financial sense for the development? And, and a lot of times um, that, you know, especially the particular um, increases we're talking about now, you know, 25% extra area um, and depending on the zone you're in um, 15 feet or 25 feet of extra height, um, it's, it's making a lot of financial sense and, it, and what it, what it does is it's making some, some properties, some lots, um, more, uh, more viable. And so mm-hmm. that, that's where the, the conversation is going in the early stages. And then, you know, we're, we're proving it out as we get into, um, kind of towards the end of those yield studies and into, um, schematic design. We're starting to work with integrated project teams to better understand, okay, what are, what is the best pathway for this project? You know, if we're choosing one of the um, quote unquote more difficult uh, pedals between energy, water, and materials, you know, what's the best pathway here based on what we know from recent projects? Um, right. What are, what are other risks that we need to manage? Um, and, and I, and I think, mm-hmm. and, I, and I'd say even if, even if, um, a project doesn't go that pathway. The fact that we're exploring it early on on a number of projects is is pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of risk mitigation, how about the the, the penalty that's in place for the um, living building program? It, it and I guess the the context here is this is an incentive program. You've you've got to kind of 
push your project forward, get get approval, zoning approval to do that. But then you've got to prove it out. You've got to hit the mark um, in performance. Um, and I know there's there there is that dynamic of um, how or I guess I'm curious how you see developers thinking about that. Um, and then I guess how you're managing that concern because uh, that that's the flip side of, of an incentive program. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's real. That's, that's real money. You know, the, the current ordinance um, can penalize a project. I think um, I'll have to double check this. I think it's a, a minimum of one, 0.5% of the um, estimated project cost through the SDCI, um, you know, cost estimator um, and up to 5% of the project cost, depending on mm-hmm. how, how, how far off the mark the project is on the energy and water targets or the um, ILFI pedal certification uh, that, and that's real. And, and that is certainly, um, I, I think that is, included in considerations by the development team. I think, I think that that's, that's there. And and one of the ways that we mitigate it is, um, you know, when it comes to energy and water targets, just making sure we've got a healthy buffer there, making sure we have contingency plans. You know, uh, we have a a couple of projects that have um, a solar photovoltaic array that's generating onsite electricity, but maybe we haven't maximized all of the available roof area. And the idea is that you could expand that if for some reason you've done everything else you can do in, in post-occupancy and in commissioning and and everything that you could do in design. And you're still just not getting there from an energy standpoint. Um, There's probably a a few things you can do even before you get to that. But, you know, one backup plan would be to add panels for additional onsite generation. Um, So things like that, just sort of thinking through scenarios. Um, But at, in the early planning stages and in the design stage, really building in those buffers, I think is, is the way yeah. we, we address that. Right. Well, it, it strikes me that, you know, as you, you, you know, you and Weber Thompson and, and other firms around town and around the country do more of these projects, it's that classic, you know, confidence and, and experience that, mm-hmm. and, that you can take to your clients and show that you've, you've, done this before you've had practice building in those the right types of buffers and you have ideas for expansion or or pivoting to to other things if if things change just one last thought um you know it, it it's it's certainly not just us as the architect um that's really you know driving these decisions driving these studies you can get a lot of help from our MEP engineers, our energy consultants, our contractors, our you know structural engineers. There's there's um, it it really does take a team effort to figure out this stuff, and and I think that's part of the risk mitigation strategy too. For you know something we've been talking about in the industry for a long time now, um, integrated project delivery or integrated design process um, is you know getting the right consultants on early in order to work this stuff out. And that's just absolutely crucial for these pilot projects and LPC projects to make sure that we're uh, not, not not necessarily that the entire mechanical system has to be designed before you get too far down the road, but really just making sure we're studying these different scenarios with the experts in the room. I think that's, that seems to be a key part of it. And that, that's what gives us uh, in addition to experience of being through this a couple of times now, 
that's what gives us the confidence when we um, are talking through what, what the best next steps are. Yeah, absolutely. I think really critical kind of mindset shift of the entire project. And it's, it's a great point of, you know, we've been talking about integrated design for ages. Um, and this is, you know, one of these uh, key examples of how you, you know, absolutely need it if you want to pull something like this off. Yeah. Um, so also, as we're talking about this, this is this Seattle living building incentive. Um, uh, but I'm wondering, are there, do you see kind of ways forward where this could, you know, be grown even more? It, you know, it feels like we've, we've come a little ways where we've got a bunch of these projects in the pipeline, but we're still talking about, you know, 10 or 20 projects, not hundreds. So I don't know what anything, anything come to mind of, of uh, where we can grow it, how we can grow it. Yeah. So I think I've um, been thinking a lot about this. Um, you know, what are, what are ways that the, the program can continue to evolve? Cause I, I do think it will, I think we'll um, keep continuing to look at the incentives and making sure that's making sense for all the different project types, you know, are there enough, you know, multifamily projects that are pursuing this? And if not, is the incentive right? There is a, there's a slight difference I should mention between the incentive between residential construction and non-residential construction. And there's a slightly difference in the incentive um, between zones that are 85 feet or less and zones that are greater than 85. So it is a very kind of carefully calibrated thing, but it really does have to be market tested. So if we're not, if, if we want more projects to participate in a particular market sector or a particular zone, I think that's something that the city can continue to study. Um, one thing I just want to mention, uh, something I hadn't thought about too much until uh, we started our conversation today. Uh, back in 2017, um, there's a really fun study. Uh, I think you know Andrew Lee, who's uh, with ILFI. Um, mm -hmm. yep. at, at, at the time, he had done kind of an independent research project on the applicability of the living building pilot program and using GIS mapping and understanding the carrying capacity of sites for energy and water water strategies and what are potential pathways. He called it pilot pathways. Um, and uh, I got to kind of brainstorm with him a bit as he was working on it and, and give him some feedback. And it's a fantastic project. Um, and one thing that might help as the city thinks about next steps is to use tools like that to really um, simulate what are the effects of some of these small tweaks to the program based on what we know about um, available development parcels in the city. It's like, this is a, this is something that you don't have to throw out completely blind and see what comes back. I think mm -hmm. there are ways to actually, you know, predict using, um, I'm sure, Planners have other tools as well that they use, but this Pilot Pathways project was great because you could, you know, flip a couple of toggles and see which sites you could even, you know, based on very specific assumptions about the pilot program at the time, based on specific assumptions about the zoning at the time, and really on an FAR basis. And of course, every site on its own is very different. There's lots of little nuances that make um, the pilot and different pathways achievable or not achievable, but at high level, from a citywide level, you could see, oh, if you 
um, can tweak this one little variable here, you've now made it so that almost no sites in the city can achieve it. You know, and then you could tweak right. this other variable over here. And it's like, oh, it looks like all of the low rise three zones can achieve it. You know, the, those sorts of high level tweaks, I think um, using those tools might be something that the city might think about investing in if, if they um, if, if they are, uh, or any, really any jurisdiction that's interested in, in this particular type of, um, zoning incentive program using uh, living building challenge that has these very specific, um, onsite energy generation, onsite rainwater, uh, harvesting onsite stormwater management goals. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of other jurisdictions, um, so shoreline, uh, just north of Seattle, uh, did adopt a few years ago a um, incentive structure not too different from the living building pilot in Seattle, but in some ways I think um, it has some it has a an incentive that's even more enticing, which is a tiered incentive. So uh, currently in the Seattle program, you get essentially the same development benefit if you do full living building challenge like the Bullet Center or if you do pedal certification with these additional energy and water targets. Um, my thinking is if the city wants to encourage, um, you know, every, it wants to encourage, you know, this deep green um, high performance building at various, um, various levels, why not give more incentive to the full living building challenge and maybe the incentive, you know, as, as is, or maybe slightly tweaked as, as I mentioned, for different project types and different zones, makes sense for the pedal certification. But make sure that projects that are going further get more incentive. And likewise, you could tier that incentive uh, down downward as well. Um, ILFI does offer something now called core certification, which is um, ten of the twenty imperatives through the Living Building Challenge. Uh, it still has the the kind of the spirit and the ethos of living building challenge, but it, it's, it's, uh, somewhat limited in the things that are the most challenging for project teams, the net positive energy, yep. the net positive water, you're still having to address these issues, a deep, deep, in, you know, sustainability issues in the project. Um, but it's a, it's a slightly lower tier than pedal certification. And likewise, pedal certification is not quite as much effort as a full living building challenge. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit it's a bit more approachable, and I, I think um, as you're alluding to, you know, especially as you look at these different um, building types or just different parcel sizes and shapes, that you know, some things are just <clears throat> going to be very hard, if not impossible. Um, and I think things like core certification um, and your your tiered incentive um, idea. Just, just lends itself to you know more project types can can get in. Um, you know, I'm been working with a, a grocery store um, client, and you know, very uh, energy and water intensive industry at its core. And uh, things like core certification, which we're we're pursuing, you know, allow us to um, still make some good strides in energy and water but it's not to the full living um, standard. Um, But it lets us really get to play in that um, still very aggressive ball game. Um, And I I think that's, I think that's pretty appealing um, to just get more um, 
more projects in the in the hopper here. Yeah, absolutely. It's it seems like a, an excellent gateway into a lot of these principles. Um, yeah, for projects who who probably just can't for whatever reason can't do the the on site um, you know energy generation on site water catchment and processing the materials pedal um, to the full extent. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I guess, yeah, to, to put back to the big picture question, you know, how, how could it improve? I, I imagine a future where there is a tiered incentive and uh, hopefully in doing that, you invite more people on both ends of the spectrum, people who are still not maybe hundred percent comfortable with things like the red list and the materials vetting um, or net positive energy. Um, they can kind of play in that space of uh, core certification and still be um pushing, you know, far beyond what's required for code. Um, then you might have some project teams, then they have, you know, just the right site. That's just like, you know, perfect conditions for doing full living building challenge and it's mission aligned and it's just, the, it's the right thing to do. And they get, um, they get the benefits from that and, and the city rewards them for that. Right. Right. Yeah. Seems, seems, uh, smart to me. So Meyer, you know, we're, we've, we've talked a bunch about you know how the the whole industry is is gained a lot of uh, experience. You know over over time, and and Weber Thompson has you know been right in the the heart of that with the Living Building Challenge. Are, are there you know pieces of that experience that you can talk to around how how the firm is is developing uh, its practice? Yeah. So. Um... I'm excited to announce that, uh, and if, if people haven't seen this already, that Weber Thompson is going to be moving into the watershed building. So the uh, 2016 um, Living Building Challenge um, pedal certified project, that's um, our, our first foray into the living building pilot. As a core and shell building, we're going to be taking, uh, we're going to be uh, moving our headquarters into that building uh, later this year. Nice. And so that's, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. Um, and, and it's part of our firm. Um, I'd say a part of our firm culture and philosophy, um, we've been in the Terry Thomas in South Lake Union, which is a uh, lead gold core and shell building and a lead platinum interior. And so we treated that building. Awesome, which is an awesome building. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it's yeah. it's um, we, we moved in in 2008. Uh, so we've been there about 12 years. And, um, you know, it really for us was a, was just a fantastic, it was a teaching tool, um, for our staff and for, um, project teams. It was a learning laboratory. We got to try things out. I think I mentioned before, um, doing, you know, occupant behavior studies, things that we could just kind of test on ourselves. And, and, and also we learned a lot as a firm by going through that process, um, both in the core and shell building and in our own build out. So when it comes to the next step for us, it's, you know, looking at living building challenge, um, you know, having gone through the process on the corn shell and that, that project is done now going through, um, things like materials vetting for our tenant improvement and, um, also being held to those energy and water performance goals after we've moved in. So we're having good conversations now about what does that mean? What do we need to communicate to staff and what is the feedback loop to make sure we're continuing to, um, really pay attention to our performance in the space. And so I, I really do see this as a progression and um, along with the um, projects that we've been designing and um, getting uh, ready to build, participating in the pilot, it's our own 
um, growth as a firm as we're um, moving into the space in, in watershed is is just one more, more one more piece of that um, educating ourselves and really embodying it. Yeah, that is fantastic. All right, I think maybe then to wrap up, um, let's uh, I guess maybe could we dig into um, you know we we did a little history of Living Building Challenge, et cetera. Um, how about how about your history? Any um, Oh, any stories, uh, short stories you want to uh, toss out in terms of you know, how you like got into sustainability? Um, obviously, you you went to architecture school, but um, you know, I don't know anything else that kind of got you going down the the green building path. Yeah, yeah, I'd say there was a little bit of it in um, architecture school. I, I uh, got my master's here at um, in Seattle, University of Washington, um, and there was certainly um, we talked about, you know, building performance. I think I was probably maybe already aware of lead, but maybe didn't quite understand all the nuts and bolts of it. Um, and, um, certainly was, as I was really starting in my career in, um, 2005, uh, with Weber Thompson, I, uh, was, was certainly deep in that world of, of lead as, um, more or less synonymous with green building. Um, mm-hmm. a couple of years later and, and absolutely, Loving it, really, and really into um, all that process, you know, the eco charrettes. And um, I think that was kind of, in some ways, kind of a golden era for my interaction with the LEED certification and and um, just a lot of excitement around it. And we were, it was really helping us um, kind of provide a framework for all the things that we wanted, we wanted to be doing on projects. Um, and then uh, a couple of years later, uh, Fast forward a little bit, 2008, um, been also been hearing about this um, program called Living Building Challenge, and there was a uh, competition held by the um, by Cascadia Green Building Council, which at the time was a, a regional chapter of the United States Green Building Council. Um, and um, we they, they hosted a uh, kind of a young architects competition and then that sort of fed into a national competition hosted by the USGBC. And so there were four of us at Weber Thompson that um, we were enlisted to, to participate in that competition. And I'd say that was a milestone moment for me because uh, we decided, um, I mean, we were encouraged in the, the local regional competition to use Living Building Challenge as a framework for this conceptual mm-hmm. design. And uh, we did that. And then I think that really that gave us just a, a really great framework to compete at a national level. So we ended up winning an award mm-hmm. here locally, regionally. And then when we competed against the national submissions from all the other chapters within the U S uh, we took first place there at a national stage. And so that was 2008 at green build in Boston. And so that was certainly, um, that was certainly a moment when it was like, oh, okay, I see kind of how, the different parts fit together. I see how living building challenge is this, you know, embodiment of, of, um, the ideals of green building that I think everyone agreed, um, you know, all 20 or 30,000 people at the conference agreed on, on what we were trying to achieve in living building challenge and the way that we, um, really explored it in this competition entry, um, was just like a, the, the just fantastic vision of what that could be. And, uh, for me, I was, I was pretty sold. I was like, okay, living building challenge has there's, there's something to this. And I think it, it took a bit, but for, 
from that point on was just always looking for some way to bring um, bring living building challenge into um, this kind of the market rate, either market rate residential or um, commercial development world. And so sort of tracking that, you can see these kind of converging lines of this very sort of visionary conceptual world of living building challenge, but not yet seeing how it fit into my day to day, seeing the pilot as um, providing this market advantage for commercial development. And then really in 2016 is where they converge when we started on the watershed project. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Fun, uh, fun backstory. I was probably at that conference. Um, oh yeah. But uh, <laughs> it's been a little while since been a little while for uh, for green build for me. Um, that was, that was a good one. About- if you remember the keynotes, it was um, EO Wilson and Janine Benyus and, Desmond Tutu. Oh yeah. uh, It was fantastic. Yeah. Nice. Good memory. Um, any other, um, any other inspirations, uh, now or, or over the years? And I guess this could be, you know, people projects or, or books or otherwise. Oh man. Um, that's a, that's a good one. There's a lot of, a lot of inspirations. Um, I finally got my copy of drawdown. And, oh, I'm nice. work, and I'm working my way page by page. You know, I know it's supposed to be a book that you don't have to read cover to cover, but I have a hard time with that. So I'm reading <laughs> each individual strategy, you know, page by page and, until I feel like I've really got it. Nice. Maybe that, that's, uh, I've, I've been thinking of doing the same. So maybe that's, uh, that, that could be like the new, uh, the new challenge th- thrown down on, on <laughs> the, uh, the building better podcast is sounds good. If, if you want to be a guest, you need to, um, you need to read draw down. <laughs> yeah. You can borrow my copy when I'm done and okay, and just pass it on. Nice. Nice. The, uh, it, it's, it's pretty inspirational. I, I really appreciate the, um, you know, it, it's very intentionally, uh, meant to be forward looking, positive, written in plain language, very accessible. Um, but you read after, after going through each category, you're just like, wow, okay, we can do this. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's such a refreshing look, um, after, um, you know, we hear a lot of doom and gloom about climate. And so mm-hmm. I, I think it's just, it's just amazing. And then it also helps, I think for architects and other people in the construction industry, it helps to see kind of where we fit in to the larger picture. Um, yeah. it's not, it's not all about us and it's certainly, uh, we can't ignore it either. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. Good, good, uh, inspiration and, and encouragement to keep it going and, and up the urgency. And, and I think uh, my understanding is that it's, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm reading the, the print publication, but I think it's meant to be updated, um, as a kind of a living uh-huh. document too right so that's something to to think about as as things you know there's coming attractions in the back of the book and i think something to <laughs> right. come back to right yeah i mean in our industry like always you know uh, maybe any industry you know con- continuous improvement you know is such a key component i think and you, you you talked about it in in a bunch of ways you know how we've gained research and experience on you know this particular standard living building challenge uh you know, how, how we might improve that incentive through, you know, different tools and, and, and research. 
Um, and, and, and this is kind of same, same theme is, is mm-hmm. uh, a great one, I think. Well, uh, I think that that feels like a really great place to, uh, stop. Um, and, you know, uh, thanks, uh, thanks a bunch Meyer for joining us here on building better. Uh, I think you gave us a lot of great, uh, anecdotes from, from the real, uh, design and construction world, um, uh, both, both kind of high level, um, policy and, and, and concepts all, all the way down to, you know, some real specifics on, on how we get this stuff done. So thanks a Absolutely. bunch. Absolutely, Jared. Thank you for having me. Great. Um, I you can tell my head's pretty deep into this stuff right now, and um, yeah, it's, I've been thinking about it a lot with um, with projects that I'm working on, but also thinking about the next project and 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 thinking about um, this program um, as 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 we're continuing to build on it in Seattle. So I appreciate the conversation. Yeah, great. Now we need we need more of that that deep dive uh, if we want to. Uh, if we want to achieve those, those, uh, draw down targets. So thanks for all, all your work and, uh, and for chatting with us today. Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks.